0: Open up our Bibles to the Book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter seven, um, and we've got a a very large chunk of scripture to go to go through this morning. Um, we're going to read go through verses one through fifty three, and so I'm going to do things slightly different this morning. Instead of reading everything up front, I um, will be reading sections of it through my sermon. Um, but this is this is our text for today, Acts seven verses one through fifty-three, um, and here we get uh, sermon uh, the the discourse of Stephen, uh, which is uh, the largest discourse in the book of Acts. Um, but before before we begin, let's let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. We, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning uh, in a powerful way, uh, Lord, in that, uh, Lord, that, that, that your word, that as we hear it, as we take it within our hearts and within our minds, uh, that it would move us to walk in your spirit uh, wherever we may go. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, like I said, because of the length of this passage, we have a lot to cover today. Uh, and so let's just dive right in. Uh, but as we're going through this, as we're going through this, there, there is one question that I want you to be thinking about. And that question is this. In what ways have you resisted the Holy Spirit? In what ways have you resisted the Holy Spirit. Now, in our text for today, we, we see Stephen, right? We, we're going to see him give his defense to the Sanhedrin. If you, if you remember from last week, he had been dragged to the court by other Hellenistic Jews. And why was he dragged there? Because he was preaching the name of Jesus in their synagogues. And because these men, they they couldn't refute Stephen. Remember, they would argue with him, but they couldn't refute him. And so they they brought him to the Sanhedrin with these trumped-up charges. Uh, And so before we get into our text, let's let's jump back a little bit. Let's look at what these trumped-up charges were. Look Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where we see these false accusations. It says, And they set up false witnesses who said... This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so they claim that that Stephen spoke against the temple and against the law. Now, now, in order for us to understand D- Stephen's defense that he's about to give, it's important for us to first understand what these accusations mean, right? Now, now, what did they mean when when they said that he spoke against the law? What what did they mean by the law? Yeah, they were they they were not just talking about the Ten Commandments here. They were they were using the broader sense of the term, uh, which would incorporate all of God's word, right? all that God had given to Israel thus far. And so to accuse this man of speaking against the law was, was basically to say that, that that Stephen was claiming that God's word was an error. That's a serious charge, right? And then they accused him of speaking against the temple. And so what does that mean? Well, what they were accusing him of was speaking against the place of God's dwelling, right? As well as the mechanism that God had established in order to sanctify his people. And so think about it. these are the accusations that, that Stephen had, one, blasphemed God's word, and, and that he had rejected the temple which to them represented God himself. These are serious charges, are they not? And according to Jewish law, if one was found guilty of these charges, the punishment was death. And so Stephen had had a lot riding on his defense, right? And yet rather than going on the defensive, Stephen takes an offensive approach. For in his rebuttal, he, he will use God's word to prove that the opposite is true. That it, that it was not he who had committed blasphemy or had, who had spoken against the temple of God. Rather, that this council, this Sanhedrin, they were the ones who were guilty of these sins. Yes, it, it was this governing body who was guilty of rejecting the temple of God as well as God's law. For they have resisted the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, they they have missed what God is doing and the salvation that he brings. And Stephen would use God's word to make this abundantly clear. Now, before I jump into the text, consider this this outline of Stephen's defense. In verses 2 through 8, Stephen first establishes the context of his argument by, by speaking of the covenant that God made with Abraham a covenant that established the people of Israel as well as the promise of a kingdom and then in verses 9 through 16 we we see the story of how how God raised up Joseph and and how his brothers Joseph's brothers had rejected him as God's savior and then in verses 17 through 29 we we see how how that after 400 years God raised up another savior in the man named Moses and yet again, God's people rejected this Savior. They rejected him. And then in verses 30 through 43, we see God restoring Moses to ministry, only to be rejected again, even after God had used this man to, to, to lead them out of Egypt, to free his people. And then in verses 44 through 50, we see Stephen shift gears a bit as, as he, he, in these verses, is addressing the, the accusation that he was speaking against the temple. And once again, he will use scripture, right, to demonstrate the truth concerning God's relationship to both the, t- the tabernacle and the temple. And then finally, in verses 51 through 53, Stephen, he, he ties all these things together. By pointing out to this Jewish council that they are just like their ancestors. That, be, that they have resisted the Holy Spirit and have rejected the salvation that God has brought to them. There's a lot there, huh? It's a big outline. Let's, let's see how we, how we do. Let's first look at uh, verses 1 through 8. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and inflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now the, the first thing that we should notice in this text was that Stephen referred to his accusers as and to his judges as brothers and fathers, right? And so he was showing both Humility and respect to these men, even though they were they were enemies of Christ. Now, why would that be? It's because Stephen's true desire is not for his own innocence, but that they would repent and turn to Jesus. And so so he began his testimony by by speaking to their common roots, right? to this man named Abraham, to to the one who truly was their father, right? And he recounted the story of when when God had called this man to to leave his home and to journey to a land that he did not know. For God had promised to Abraham that he he would give to him a kingdom, right? That through his offspring, they would take possession of the land. And yet God also told Abraham that this kingdom was a long way off. In fact, God spoke of his descendants as becoming slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And yet Abraham accepted God's promise and became obedient to the call. He, he left his home, the, the, the life that he had known, and, and lived a life of a nomad, really. Moving, in, moving his tent where, wherever God would tell him to go. And even though he, he knew he would never see the kingdom come to fruition in his lifetime, he he believed the promise nevertheless. In fact, the, for the majority of his life, he was childless, right? And yet he believed God's word, that the promise would come through his offspring. And when his son Isaac finally arrived, that, that day was the first time that Abraham saw the future kingdom that was promised to him in a tangible sense, right? And so the covenant of God was signified through the practice of circumcision. And this would be the sign of of all of Abraham's offspring, right? That they truly were God's people and that the kingdom belonged to them. So, so, So why does Stephen start here? Why begin with the story of Abraham? What Stephen is doing here is he he is establishing a framework concerning God's promises and how they relate to His people. In fact, it is it is through Abraham that the that the people of God even exist, right? So, so here's what we should notice about this: one, God is not limited to any particular land, right? that when he first spoke to Abraham, where did he go? He, he, he came to Abraham in the land of Ur. And so God is not limited to any particular land. But, but second, in Abraham, we, we, we see the, an example of faith. For, for he had believed God's word and became obedient to his calling, even though he knew that he would never see its fruition in his lifetime. And so genuine faith is is demonstrated in a complete trust in God's word. So God is not limited to any particular land, and genuine faith is demonstrated in a complete trust in God's word. And so these two things really set the stage for what we are about to see. For in just three generations, we see the faith of Abraham waning. Look at, look, look at verses 9 through 16. Here we see the story of Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Now, if, if you know the story of Joseph, which I hope you all do, if, if not, read it. But if you know this story, then you will remember that God had given to Joseph dreams, right? And these dreams were, were signifying that one day he would rule over his brothers and that they would pay homage to him. But you will also remember that, that these dreams really didn't sit that well with his brothers, did they? Mm-hmm. All right? And so what did they do? They, they attacked him. They threw him down in a, into a well, and then eventually uh, they were talk, talked out of killing him. And yet they sold Joseph to the Egyptians as a slave. But why did they do so? What, what, what does Stephen tell us in our passage today? Because they were jealous of their brother. It, it was jealousy that had motivated them to do this. Here's the point. Whether, whether they knew it or not, they had rejected God's chosen leader. And the reason they rejected him was because they were jealous because they wanted the kingdom all to themselves. And they would rather sell their brother than to let him be king over them. And yet God chose to use this Joseph, did he not? He, he used Joseph to rescue his brothers despite their jealousy. And through a, a variety of circumstances, Joseph found himself as, as the right-hand man to Pharaoh, Right? He was second in command in all of Egypt. And it was through Joseph's wisdom that Egypt was able to avoid disaster when the famine hit. And guess what else? Joseph was able to rescue his brothers by giving them food as well in their time of need. And so in Joseph, what do we see? We we, we see a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, do we not? For for like Jesus, Joseph was righteous and wise. And just like Jesus, it was through his suffering that he was able to bring salvation to his brothers. These brothers whose hearts were filled with jealousy. Dear friends, in in what ways have, have you allowed jealousy to cloud your thinking? How have you resisted the Holy Spirit because of an envious heart? Because you wanted something that was someone else's? This leads us to our next example that Stephen gives, the example of Moses, another man who who typifies Christ, right? Look, Look at verses 17 through 29. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Here in Stephen's next argument, he he takes us to the beginning of Moses' life, right? Here was this Jewish boy who had been set apart by God and was spared, right? Spared a cruel death by the hands of Pharaoh. And yet in in God's providence he he ended up being raised in Pharaoh's house. I mean speak of irony of ironies, right? And when Moses became a man, he he didn't forget his Jewish roots. And so he visited his people. But when he did, he he saw one of his own being oppressed. And so what did he do? He he brought justice to this man and struck down the Egyptian. And so in this act, we we, we see the inklings, the beginnings of of God using Moses to rescue his people. And yet what happened the very next day when he tried to resolve the dispute between two of his Jewish brothers? What did they do? Instead of embracing him as God's appointed ruler and judge, they, they rejected him. They thrust him to the side. And in so doing, they rejected the salvation that he could have brought them. How does Stephen word this? Look at, look at verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. You see, the, the reason they rejected Moses was because they did not Understand. They they were ignorant as to what God was trying to do. Does it remind you of anything? Look Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Here we see the words of Jesus as he was being crucified by his Jewish brothers. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What had happened to Moses also happened to Jesus. They had no understanding of what they were doing when they crucified Christ. It was out of ignorance that they had rejected their Messiah. Again, Stephen is is showing us this picture, this, this, this type of Christ in the life of Moses. Just as Moses was sent by God to be both ruler and redeemer of Israel, so too this Jesus of Nazareth was appointed by God to be leader and savior of God's people. And just as Moses was thrust to the side by this Jewish slave because of his ignorance, we know that Jesus would be rejected by his people because they knew not what they were doing. Let me ask you, In what ways have you become ignorant to God's saving work? How have you resisted the Holy Spirit because you haven't taken the time to to know your God and and his plan of salvation for you? And yet God wasn't done with Moses, was he? There's more to learn from this man. Look Look at verses 30 through 41. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came a voice, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who has led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered up a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Now there's a lot there, but I think it's worthwhile to note that that God spoke to Moses in the wilderness on Mount Sinai and not in some temple made by human hands. And, And what did God command Moses to do on that mountain? To take off his sandals, right? For the place where he was standing was holy ground. And that's just it. Holy ground is wherever God is, right? And not just in some temple that was constructed by human hands. I think Stephen's hinting at something here. But, but why did God come to Moses in the first place? What, what, what did he say? Be, because he heard the groaning of his people And he had come to rescue them. And God would use this Moses to bring about that rescue. He was sending him. Now now it had been 40 years, a, a full generation, since that Israelite slave had rejected him. Perhaps this new generation would be willing to accept God's chosen Savior. And so God restored Moses to ministry where he would be Israel's ruler and redeemer. And this is exactly what Moses did, right? Through signs and wonders, he was able to lead God's people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, where they would make their way eventually to the promised land. But what happened in that time between? Between their freedom and them entering into the promised land? What what does Stephen tell us? Look at verse 39 again. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Once again, we we see the the man of God's choosing being rejected by his people. I mean, they would rather return to Egypt and worship these false gods than to follow the one who had rescued them in the first place. Does that make any sense? And that's just it. This, this was a rejection of God's chosen leader because of their idolatry. And by rejecting God's chosen leader, by rejecting God's chosen redeemer, in essence, they, they were rejecting God Himself. As well as his offer of freedom. I mean, think about it. What what did they want to do? They, they wanted to run back to their shackles. Now, what could cause a people to prefer slavery over freedom? It's because he preferred the gods of Egypt over the God of Abraham. Dear friends, what what, what are the gods in your own life that have you enslaved? How have you resisted the Holy Spirit because you have created an idol? An idol that you want to worship more than the one true God. To make his point crystal clear, Stephen then quoted for this council the words of the prophet Amos. Look at verses 42 and 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And so Stephen was reminding these ones whom he called brothers and fathers that it was because of idolatry that God had punished their people in the past. And part of that punishment was his turning away and giving them over to the idolatry that was within their hearts. And so from the, the time that Israel had been freed from Egypt until the time when God had exiled them and sent them into the land of Babylon, they had never ceased to have idolatry in their hearts. And thus their rejection of Moses was really a rejection of Yahweh. For their desire was to worship anything else but the one true God. Now now when you add this all up, from the story of Abraham to the stories of Joseph and Moses, what you end up getting is this. Time and time again throughout Israel's history, God's people had rejected God's chosen leaders. They had done so out of jealousy. They had done so out of ignorance. And now they had done so out of their idolatrous hearts. And by rejecting God's chosen leaders... What they had essentially done was was reject God's covenant, a, a covenant that would make them a people, a, a covenant that would give them a kingdom. And when you reject God's covenant, what are you ultimately doing? you're You're rejecting God himself. but if as if that wasn't enough, Stephen was not yet finished. This is a long defense, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, he was also accused of speaking against the temple. And so Stephen would now shift his focus from from rejected saviors to to both the tabernacle and the temple. Look, Look at his defense. Look at verses 44 through 47. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now, now what is the point of recalling the, the, the historical timeline that that takes us from the tabernacle to the temple. From, from the tent of God's presence to the house of God's presence. What is Stephen getting at here? Well, well, the point is that this tabernacle was ordained by God as a place where his presence would dwell with his people. A, a mobile tent that, that that traveled wherever God went, right? And wherever God went, wherever that tent would go, so would God's blessing. And this was the case for a very, very long time, up until the time of David. And yet it was David and not God who was the one who who desired to have a permanent dwelling place for God. David thought that some stone temple would be an improvement over this mobile tent. And while God conceded to this idea, he he would not allow David to be the one to build it, right? Rather, it would be his son. God would would, would choose to have his people wait until David's death and when Solomon was king for the temple to be built. Now, Now what Stephen... What's subtly communicating here through this story were, were really two things. One, while the tabernacle was initiated by God, the temple was not. Rather, that idea was contrived in the mind of a man. And two, the necessity to have a temple within Jerusalem is not as essential as people think. Israel had got along just fine for hundreds of years without it. And God made it clear that even David, this this one who who, who is described as as a man after God's own heart, right? He would not allow that man to have a temple. And and here's why. Look Look at the next two verses. Look at verses 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what? what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You see, e- even when there was a temple, God's presence was not limited to a house made of stone and bricks. That's not who he is. For God is greater than, than our minds can comprehend. And he is not limited by spatial dimensions. Even Solomon, the man who built the first temple, understood this. Look look at what he said after the Lord's presence had entered into the Holy of Holies for the first time. Look at at 1 Kings 8, verse 27. These are the words of Solomon. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and, and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? I mean, these are the words coming out of the mouth of the man who who witnessed that thick cloud entering the Holy of Holies, that, that cloud that veiled the Shekinah glory of God. He knew that it could not contain him. Bottom line whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, these were just man made places. Places where God had chosen to dwell, in an effort to condescend to the needs of His people, because our minds are limited, right? Our, our understanding of God's nature is weak. We, we cannot comprehend Him, and so it's not that it, that the, the, the temple was a bad idea. That 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 it was. Wrong for them to build it. That's not what Stephen's saying here. But we should never think that God is somehow limited to four walls, right? He, he is not con- this confined being that we would like him to be, right? In a place where he can be managed, in a place where he can be manipulated, And yet this was the thinking of these religious leaders. For for in the temple, everything fit into its nice little box, right? Everything was manageable and under their control. They had restricted this God who they claimed to worship to a confined space. And that's because their God was small. They had a God who could be housed in a tiny, tiny room. And so for them, this, this man-made temple was just perfect. And yet it was for this reason that they had failed to recognize the true temple of God when he came and dwelt among his people. For they had failed to understand that the, that the temple itself was simply a foreshadow of the Messiah. And now that that Christ has finally arrived, that house made with human hands had become obsolete. Look look at John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Here, Here we have the story of the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And that's just it. God is spirit. There is no tent. There, there is no temple that can contain him. And yet God chose to tabernacle as one of us. How amazing is that? And, and so the true location the, the where, where we truly worship God That place has now moved. No longer is it in some man-made temple. For it is now in Jesus. In him we find everything that we need. And that's why we worship him. Well, this leads us to the end of Stephen's defense where he 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 wraps a bow on it, right? He ties all these things together, making his final point, and and really the theme of his discourse. Look at at verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see, just as their fathers failed to recognize God's salvation in the past, so too have they. And it was due to their their jealousy. It was due to their ignorance. It was due to their idolatry. And it it was due to their small notion of God. They resisted the Holy Spirit. How does Stephen describe these men? He he calls them a stiff necked people. What what does a stiff neck do? You can't turn your neck, right? You can't look a different direction. And that's because they couldn't see past these walls of stone and and recognize the truth that God had revealed to them through his son. What else does he call them? That they are uncircumcised in both their hearts and ears. They were not like Abraham, who was obedient to the covenant. the, The covenant of circumcision, right? That identified him as... God's people. And why? Because they refused to listen to God's prophet, this one who was greater than Moses. And because they would not listen, they wouldn't allow his words to mold and shape their hearts. And this is what it means to resist the Holy Spirit. It is to reject what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. And what the Holy Spirit was revealing to them and what the Holy Spirit always reveals is that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And that God's plan of salvation comes through Him and through Him alone. You see, these men had ignored all the signs that God had given to them. All throughout Jesus' ministry, they fought against it. And then, when the tomb was empty, they ignored that as well. And now they were currently ignoring how the Holy Spirit was moving in the lives of these apostles, and in the life of this man named Stephen, and the lives of those who were proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's because they had shut their ears, and they had shut their hearts, and because they refused to to turn their necks. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. And that is why they were just like their fathers. Those who had persecuted the prophets and killed those who had announced the coming of the righteous one. For they had betrayed and murdered their Messiah and in so doing had become breakers of the law. And so it was not Stephen who was against the law and against the temple, but it was them. For like, for, 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 for like their brother Joseph, right? The brothers of Joseph, they were just like them who had jealousy in their hearts. And they were like that Jewish slave in Egypt that, that failed to recognize God's salvation. And they were like those who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, committing acts of idolatry. All because they couldn't see past the walls of this man made temple. And because they failed to notice that God's presence had moved. It had moved into that new temple. That temple who is the God man, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to resist the Holy Spirit, it is to spurn God's grace. And yet, before we lift ourselves up and, and into the judgment seat, we must first take a hard look in the mirror, must we not? For, for we can listen to Stephen's defense and think that, that these things, they're, they're only referring to those hypocritical religious leaders, right? And yet, what has Stephen proven to us? That this has been the folly of God's people throughout history. And so who's to say that, that we haven't fallen into some of those same traps? Which brings me back to my original question. In what ways have you resisted the Holy Spirit? Are you like the brothers of Joseph? Is there jealousy within your own heart? Driving you to sin against your own brother? Against your own sister? Are you like that slave who did not understand and in his ignorance thrust Moses to the side? Are you ignorant concerning God's ways? Is there knowledge lacking in your life because you you haven't taken the time to to dig into God's word and to find out what it really says? Are you like the people in the wilderness who, who even after they had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, they had rejected God's Savior and ran after idols instead? What are the idols in your life? What are the gods that you have created because you, you don't like the God who created you? And finally, are, are you like those religious leaders who, who clung on to the walls of this man-made temple because, because in there, God was small? God was safe? God could be managed? In what ways do you try to limit God or even to control him. Let's be honest. We, we have all, to one degree or another, been, been guilty of these things, have we not? We, we have all, in our own ways, resisted the Holy Spirit. And yet Christ is patient with us. He, he teaches us. He, he guides us. He shows us that in his kingdom, there's nothing to be jealous of, right? Because in him, we already have everything we need. And he has revealed to us through his holy word, everything that we need to know. We no longer need to be ignorant. We no longer need to miss out on his salvation. And he has sent to us his Holy Spirit who who sanctifies us within, who changes our heart, our idolatrous hearts. He turns them into hearts that yearn for him. And no matter where you are, and this is a good thing, no matter where you are, he is always by your side. He is not limited by any man-made structure. You don't need to be in these four walls to experience God, right? Just cry out his name and he will be there. Do not resist the Holy Spirit, for Jesus will come to you even today. Look to your Redeemer and find salvation, for he is the only one who can truly save. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now knowing that you are here with us. And it's not because we are inside a church building, but it's because you are always near to your people. And so we ask you this day that you would help us, that you help us to not resist your Holy Spirit. Take away any jealousy that lingers within our hearts. Motivate us to study your word that we might not miss your saving work, that saving work that comes through your son. And remove the idols that fill, fill our hearts. Help us to focus on you alone. And most importantly, remind us each and every day that no matter where we are, you are always by our side, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' name.